0: Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative, and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State, Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPInfo.org. New York Governor Kathy Hochul is proposing in her state budget to increase the temporary disability leave benefit for injured workers for the first time in 35 years and to give it parity with the state's paid family leave program. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports.
1: Temporary disability leave is for New Yorkers who are unable to work for a period of time due to an injury or illness that occurred outside of their job. The benefit is also eligible for people with pregnancy-related conditions. The maximum amount of money paid to a worker per week has been $170 for 35 years. When taxes and other expenses like Social Security contributions are taken out, the weekly amount is considerably lower. State Senator Jeremy Cooney says that amount is not enough for a household to pay their bills and it needs to be raised. He's sponsoring legislation to do that.
2: This benefit has not been updated since 1989. I always joke, that's when Taylor Swift was born, right?
1: Cooney says he's delighted that Governor Hochul has incorporated many of the bill's provisions into her state budget. Hochul wants to increase the maximum weekly benefits over five years and eventually tie it to the statewide average weekly wage. That's currently over $1,700. Cooney says it will be easier to make the change if it's part of the state's multi-billion dollar spending plan.
2: We're pretty excited that we're seeing THIS ISSUE BECOME ELEVATED.
1: COONEY SAYS MOST PEOPLE AREN'T AWARE OF HOW LITTLE THE BENEFIT PAYS UNTIL THEY NEED IT. HE SAYS IT WAS BROUGHT TO HIS ATTENTION FROM A CONSTITUENT SHORTLY AFTER HE WAS ELECTED TO OFFICE IN 2020. HE SAYS SINGLE INCOME HOUSEHOLDS AND LOWER INCOME HOUSEHOLDS WHO ARE LIVING PAYCHECK TO PAYCHECK HAVE TO MAKE DIFFICULT CHOICES ABOUT PROVIDING FOR BASIC NECESSITIES LIKE RENT, CAR PAYMENTS AND FOOD. WE'RE ALLOWING PEOPLE WHO ARE INJURED OUTSIDE OF THE WORKPLACE to have a wage that's living wage uh, so that
2: they can provide for themselves and their families, they can heal, and then rejoin our workforce.
1: The temporary disability payments are far lower than the more recently enacted paid family leave program. That pays a maximum of over $1,000 a week. Rebecca Hanna, who lives on Long Island with her husband and two children, used the temporary disability benefit during both of her pregnancies for childbirth and postpartum recovery. She says ironically, if she were to have another child now and her husband took paid family leave to take care of the newborn, he would receive significantly more money per week than she would. Let's say I needed to use disability for uh, childbirth and postpartum recovery again. I would get $170 a week. Meanwhile, my husband would get more than six times that amount through paid family leave. We're talking over $1,000 a week to care for me or to bond with our new child. It's not fair. It's not equitable. And it's, it's a tear in our social safety net that really needs to be mended. Hannah says unlike most people who need temporary disability benefits, she had time to plan for leave at the end of her pregnancies. She cut her household's budget to save money in advance, and she also had access to a supplemental short-term disability plan offered by her employer, which not everyone has. I was lucky because it was a pregnancy-related condition. I knew about it ahead of time. And so I had several months to be able to prepare financially for a period of time where I wouldn't be getting a paycheck. um, And what I would be getting through disability benefits would only be a fraction of my weekly pay. While New York State pays staff to administer the program, the weekly benefits are paid through contributions from workers and employers. They would rise slightly under the proposal. Senator Cooney says going forward he'd like the rate of temporary disability benefits to be tied to the rate of inflation, just like it is now for paid family leave. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network.
0: This week I sat down with New York State Assembly Majority Leader Crystal People Stokes, a Democrat from Western New York, and I spoke to her about the governor approving temporary government jobs for migrants.
3: You know, the fact of the matter is these people are here. If they're capable of working and there are jobs that are available, they should be employed. When they're employed, then we won't be in a position where we would have to support them with government services. So I I think it's a win-win. We're probably at our lowest unemployment rate in decades, not just in New York State, but nationally. So, clearly, some things are going right in terms of the average citizen's opportunity to be employed. And if there are still openings that need to be filled, and the business community is well aware of this. You know, it's like the apples are meeting the apples. Let's make this happen.
4: Well, the governor, to your
0: point, says that she's hearing from all over the state, hey, I need workers over here to do this. Send me some of those migrants.
3: Well, you know, I, I recently read an article. I'm not sure where I read it at, David, but I want to say it was either in, I think it was in Forbes or some sort of business newsletter. And it was basically saying that We used to think that China imported most goods to America. Now, in fact, it's not China. It's Mexico, then China, then Canada, where we're getting most of our products from. And so if we work towards flipping that around that we won't have to import so many things, then perhaps we won't need migrants to do jobs that we cannot find other people to do. But right now, we're still importing much of what we need. And somebody has to do the work. And so I'm clear that there's always going to be opposition. And quite honestly, we live in a country where, you know, everybody has a right to speak. So,
0: yeah, and no matter what the governor does on the state level, the federal government has to deal with this problem directly, don't they?
3: Well, you know what? We've been waiting for the federal government to deal with immigration problems for, what, 30 years, 40 years? And they haven't. So at some point... States are going to have to move to protect themselves and to protect their taxpayers. And I see this as a move on the governor's part to try and do that.
0: That's New York State Assembly Majority Leader Crystal Peoples Stokes, a Democrat. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was in Albany this week to launch an effort to keep undetectable plastic weapons illegal. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas with more.
5: Flanked by Albany Mayor Kathy Sheehan and Police Chief Eric Hawkins, Schumer sounded the alarm that a Reagan-era law is set to expire on March 8th.
6: I'm here as majority leader of the Senate to launch my push to get Congress to extend this life-saving provision in the next month to keep undetectable ghost guns from flooding our streets.
5: Schumer says current law requires that every gun must contain at least around four ounces of metal a little less than a roll of pennies.
6: But it ensures that, no matter what, guns will set off metal detectors, which keeps everyone safe. If this provision were to lapse, they can make this now with 3-D printers very easily. They can make 3-D guns. Um, They can make plastic guns with 3-D printers. And they could easily be bought and sold, making it terrifiably easy. For these weapons to show up at schools, at airports, at big events, because security would have no way of detecting them, and it's hard to fathom that we would allow that to happen.
5: Hawkins says the department is seeing a rise in confiscated ghost guns. Five years ago, uh, we
2: didn't see any ghost guns in our community, and then two or three years ago, uh, we saw a significant increase to the point of where
5: 13 and percent.
2: Of the weapons that we, the illegally possessed weapons that we uh, took off the streets in Albany, were ghost guns.
5: Schumer says the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, and NASCAR are all worried that ghost guns could be snuck into stadiums. So he's pushing hard for an extension of the Undetectable Firearms Act.
6: They wrote me personally and voiced their concerns. Now you say, well, why are you waiting for the last minute here? This bill, this amendment was put into, I put it into the Defense Authorization Act, a must-act proposal a few months ago, and the House Republicans said, take it out. I don't know why they did that, but now we have to make another effort to put it in another must pass bill.
5: Sheehan noted that we are all accustomed to being screened, which gives some peace of mind when entering a facility.
1: Many school children walk through metal detectors when they go into our schools, when we go into concert venues, when people come to City Hall, when people go into our courthouses. And as we see the studies that are out there and the surveys that are out there that talk about the level of anxiety That young people are feeling, one of the top things that they feel anxious about is their own personal safety and guns in schools and school shootings.
5: For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas.
0: listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The federal government recently awarded New York State nearly $230 million to connect tens of thousands of homes still without access to wired broadband internet. But in some parts of the Hudson Valley, local lawmakers are being urged to prepare for the wireless network of the future, 5G. Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress released a new report this month called Making It Mesh, detailing what needs to be done on the local level to allow for a smooth transition. Pattern President and CEO Adam Bosch tells
2: Our neighbors have done far, far more than we have. And you could argue that essentially we've done nothing. We've done incentives. Everybody has incentives. But what have we done to balance home rule With real strategies and mandates that require home rule to be balanced with the imperative to meet regional needs. Because there is case law in New York, going back many decades, that says your decisions about zoning cannot only consider the needs within your municipal boundaries. That you have to consider regional needs when you're making zoning decisions in your community. Home rule is not a God-given right. Home rule is a piece of enabling legislation that passes down to allow communities to make their own decisions about how they're going to govern themselves, how their communities are going to be designed. But home rule comes within the context of the requirement that those communities act in a way that meets the greater good and meets regional needs.
7: So what specifically are other states doing to increase their housing stock?
2: The states that surround us have paired home rule up with reasonable mandates to ensure that, yes, the towns can design themselves, the towns can govern themselves, but they have to do it within a specific context that meets the statewide and regional needs. So in Massachusetts, for example, If you are in a town or in a town that's adjacent to a train, bus, subway, or ferry stop, you have to have at least one zone that allows density of 15 units per acre. It's not a question. It's a requirement. You can design it however you want. You can put it wherever you want within a half mile, but you have to do it. If you're a developer in some of these states and a municipality is holding you up and putting onerous conditions on you and trying to get rid of its multifamily zones. They have, you know, builder's remedies and boards you can go to to appeal this. And in Massachusetts, if your municipality has more than 10% affordable housing, you're not subject to that board in that appeals process because you have met your part of the regional need, right? In New Jersey, they have They have something going back decades that requires every town to plan to meet its regional needs for housing, based on population and economic trends that are reassessed every 10 years. And you have to put together a plan how you're going to meet your portion of the statewide share to meet the housing needs of your neighbors. So these are just some of the things right Vermont not a home rule state right Vermont's the only state that surrounds us that's not home rule. But even in Vermont, right, if you are served by public water and sewer, you have to zone for a a minimum of five dwelling units per acre, right? And all that says, Massachusetts, Vermont, if we're investing in public infrastructure, we want to try to maximize the amount of housing that's going to take advantage of the public infrastructure that exists. It's really, really startling to cast what the other states are doing against what we are doing, because they are taking case law and putting it into action. They're taking statewide needs and putting it into action in the form of requirements, in the form of strategies, in the form of mandates, and we are not doing any of that.
7: You know, one explanation that I've heard when it comes to the importance of home rule has been that Some communities in the Hudson Valley don't physically have the infrastructure to handle growth mandates. They don't have the resources or the sewer and water systems because they weren't designed to handle a large population. Um, So how do you reconcile that? Are you saying that's not necessarily the case here, or is there some infrastructure work that needs to happen first?
2: So, So there is some truth in the fact that our infrastructure is, in many cases, not in a state of good repair and in some places not large enough to accommodate uh, the type of housing that we need, right? So the capacity of some of our infrastructure is not large enough to allow for a lot of additional housing. But guess what? That's not true everywhere. There are some places where the infrastructure can handle a lot more. There are some places where we should be looking to update the infrastructure so that it can allow more housing. When it comes to home rule, the thing that this report shows that is important is that we can balance home rule with the need to meet statewide and regional interests when it comes to housing we can still allow and should still allow communities to design themselves communities to govern themselves but we can what we can't allow is places to just shut the door behind them and say We like our town. Nobody else is allowed in. That is a violation of case law. It's, again, it's not up for debate. It's a violation of case law. And there is a history of court cases in the state where the courts have upheld this time after time. Now, how do we do it? We shouldn't do it through the courts. But what we should do is sit down as a legislature as a state and with wide open eyes say hey we got a problem 97 out of our 120 school districts are shrinking we've lost tens of thousands of kids from the state and the hudson valley itself has lost a people in 25 years to a net outward migration the number one reason they cite for leaving is housing so we've kind of got a decision between, are we gonna do something about it or are we gonna to continue to let the region hollow out?
7: Well, lastly, when we spoke about Pattern's out of reach report last year, you said you felt the key to fighting the housing crisis was actually you know, building different types of housing. When people talk about their personal goals, they often describe owning a home, not necessarily renting an apartment, but a lot of the projects being suggested right now are for affordable multi-unit apartment buildings. So from your perspective, what's it going to take to make home ownership and not necessarily renting more feasible, I guess, in the Hudson Valley?
2: So the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that home ownership has a lot of different looks and shapes and feels, right? Homeownership is not just a certain size home on a two-acre lot. Homeownership looks like cooperative ownership, where you have multiple units that can be owned in a single building. Homeownership looks like what it did when my grandparents owned a home in the city of Newburgh, and it was on a quarter-acre lot, and it was a smaller home. Homeownership looks like um, mobile home parks in some of our rural areas that provide a pathway For people to get into homeownership and then they hop to a different kind of home from there. We need to understand that home ownership is not homogeneous. It doesn't take one look and shape, right? So we need to make sure that our zoning is set up to allow for different styles of home ownership and different sizes. Um, We really need to, you know, I think we made a big mistake back if you if you think about it. Um, And I don't know how old you are, but I remember in the 90s, you know, when I when I was a kid in the 90s, we got the newspaper and uh, that was when the term McMansion became popular. Right. And a lot of our region ended up being zoned and ultimately built out for McMansions that were on big lots on cul-de-sacs. Right. And sort of sounds like a stereotype, but big chunks of our region were built out that way. What we're finding now is that the demand for housing and people's ability to afford housing is very, very different from that. And yet our zoning still allows essentially that, that pattern of development. So what we need to do is we need to adjust that. You know, people want to live in smaller homes on smaller lots. People wanna live in walkable communities in ownership models where it's not detached units. It might be attached units that are either town homes or cooperative units. Not to repeat myself, but what we really need to do is to make sure that our zoning is modern and updated, to make sure that our zoning allows for what developers are trying to build, and that our zoning also matches the desire for different styles and types of housing that the market is looking for. Um, And we can't just chase the person with a lot of pocket cash who wants to move up from New York City and pay all money for a house that's large on a big lot. Otherwise, we risk continuing to lose our full-time residents who are picking up and going elsewhere, and guess where they're going? They're going to the states that are building a lot of housing.
0: That's Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress President and CEO Adam Bosch speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Jesse King. the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The New York Racing Association has announced more details in advance of the first Belmont Stakes at Saratoga Racecourse in June. The Legislative Gazette's Aaron Shella levine has more
4: saratoga springs is preparing for record crowds weeks before its typical 40-day summer season begins in july the four-day belmont festival will begin thursday june 6th with the marquee third leg of the triple crown that saturday while belmont park undergoes half a billion dollars in renovations in a departure from normal saratoga ground rules no outside alcohol will be allowed in for the duration of the belmont weekend during saratoga's summer meet, racegoers can bring in coolers with their food and beverages of choice. Naira spokesman Pat McKenna says the organization is looking at the upstate Belmont as entirely separate from Saratoga's usual summer season.
8: What Naira has said all along is that this is a a Belmont stake that will be at Saratoga racecourse, but this will not feel like an ordinary day During the summer meet, most of the policies and protocols that are in place at Belmont Park will follow the event to Saratoga, most notably um, the prohibition on fans bringing outside alcohol into the venue Uh, beyond that fans will be able to bring coolers with food and beverages just like any other day at Saratoga.
4: Tickets go on sale February 15th and are significantly pricier than Saratoga's typical $10 a day price of entry. McKenna says although some may be upset by the price hike, Naira is working to make sure the event stays affordable. We believe that these
8: prices are fair, especially with the addition of fans being able to bring in outside food and beverages. Um, These are incredibly competitive price points for a triple crown event. Imagine walking into Yankee Stadium for the World Series for 50 bucks or Madison Square Garden for the NBA Finals for 50 bucks. Nowhere near, you know, you're not approaching anything like that.
4: Saratoga County Chamber of Commerce President Todd Shemkiss says while the changes may be unsettling to some, they aren't all bad.
2: If you're a bar located outside of the fences of the race course, uh, and you're open during these four days. People have options to support local businesses, whether it's pre-gaming or afterwards. And same with the, you know, with roughly 180 bars and restaurants throughout the city, right? So, if you know what, spend as little as you want on the alcohol on the track, and then come outside and have a good time uh, after the after the meet, after the races are over, at any one of those bars and restaurants across the city and around Saratoga County. So I think it's, it actually will drive people um, into those bars and restaurants before and after racing.
4: New York Thoroughbred Horsemen's Association President Tina Bond says her organization is looking forward to the change of pace and supports Naira's efforts to run the Belmont as effectively as possible.
8: It's a big undertaking for them to move it from Belmont to here, um, a lot of transitional things. and so. Um, I think they're they're making the best decisions that they can make for for this big change, and it's going to be a huge day. It's going to be even a huger day if we have a, a candidate that's eligible for the triple crown. So, um, the excitement it's just it's electrifying.
4: Attendance will be capped at 50,000. This is Aaron shallow Levine.
0: And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York Public News Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at WAMCPodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2405 and join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York state government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, president, uupinfo.org.